0: People have this nature underneath that just explodes into existence on pages like this. And it is the nations. It is right here in Joshua. It is the devouring dog-eat-dog nature that is in every single human being. And it's manifesting itself. and And it's like how much better we are than someone else because I can decide on my platform whether you deserve my approval or not.
1: Welcome to the ACC Podcast. We're honored that you took some time out of your day to listen to one of our weekly messages. We hope that these messages bring you closer to Jesus, strengthen your faith, and deepen your understanding about the Bible. If you're thinking of attending ACC, we're currently holding one service at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. You can visit our website for more information. That's anacorteschristian.church. That's A N A c-o-r-t-e-s christian.church. You can also visit our website if you have any questions about ACC, like our core beliefs, where we are located, or if you'd like to get in contact with us. We would love to hear from you. So, whether you're sitting, driving, or exercising, thanks for tuning in. Let's dive into the Bible together.
0: Hey, who likes ultimatums? What's an ultimatum? Um, kids, when your parents, when you say to your parents, I don't like what you're trying to feed me for dinner, and your parents say, look, you're eating that or nothing, that's an ultimatum, all right? An ultimatum is a choice, but it's a choice that you've got to make. You've got to make a choice. And this week, when I looked at Joshua, uh, where we're at in the book of Joshua, it looks like an ultimatum, and it... There's there's sort of an ominous feel that really had me at first going like man, why did we choose this book like you know like this it's a, and this has been the journey a lot of times as I set out for the next week to get into these passages in this book it often starts out looking like what what is really here for us what you know almost discouraging but when you get into it when you get under the surface you find Um, much more than, than what you initially might take from it. And that was certainly the case this week as well. We're nearing the end of the book of Joshua, and there's two chapters at the end, chapter 23 and 24. And the situation is that a significant amount of time has now passed. God has given rest to Israel from war with all their surrounding nations. And it's a time of peace and learning to live as a settled nation. And right there, I think, is where we could actually pause and just relate a little bit because I think that what Joshua is detecting and what he's going to challenge them with is the challenge of being a settled people. Because it's when you're comfortable. I think it's when we are easily satisfied with the things that give us temporary fulfillment. That's when the real danger happens in our faith. That's when idolatry takes place. That's when unbelief creeps in because our commitment and our passion starts to ebb, starts to wane a little bit. So Joshua is now very old. And before he dies, he wants to address the nation of Israel. And so he gives these two speeches. Chapter 23, Joshua addresses the leadership of Israel. And in chapter 24, it's more of a formal covenant or a renewal of the covenant that, God ge- that Joshua gives to all the people of Israel. And the reason this is significant is because they're no longer going to have a dominant leader figure like Moses, like Joshua, who is their singular servant of the Lord that sort of carries their the responsibility of their identity and their worship and their choices uh, representing the nation. They're not going to have that. But... They do have the writings of Moses and Joshua. They have the Torah. They have all they need, although from now on, as you'll see in the next book, the book of Judges, they're going to be ruled and led mostly by a series of regional judges. So the heart of what Joshua is about to say, the heart of it is a choice. There is a choice before you now. In light of everything that's taken place, you need to choose. Who are you going to serve? The Lord... Or the gods of the nations. Moses is gone. <clears throat> Joshua will no longer be around to choose for you. You can't bear the weight. Uh, he can't bear the weight of representing Israel's choice and identity as a people set apart for the Lord. You have to choose for yourselves, and that is true for all of us today. Your faith cannot ride on the shoulders of some spiritual leader. You know, going to church and listening to the word is not serving Jesus. Okay? It, it's helpful. It fills us. It helps us to grow. But you've got to choose for yourself. You've got to choose whether you will serve the Lord and what that looks like every day of your life. It can't rest on some figure that speaks to you or looks up to you, that you might look up to. Kids, you know, as you grow older, if you grow up in a Christian home, your parents are probably believers and they might talk to you about what it means to believe in Jesus or to live as a Christian and for a while you might believe, but ultimately, eventually, you've got to make a choice for yourself. You've got to make your own belief your own. You can't forever live off of your, your parents' faith. You've got to choose at some point as well. And that's what's kind of happening here. Are the people going to choose? And there's two possible futures. The consequences of this choice will be drastic. Life and blessing on the one hand, or perishing and destruction on the other. And at face value, that sounds like an ultimatum. That sounds like a choice that I would just rather ignore. Can't I just kind of float through life? Why do I have to choose? The reason you have to choose is because God loves you. And He will not force nor coerce you into obedience because that would not be love. That would be slavery. I, you know, my son was asking me recently, I'm like, why does God allow sin? Why does God allow evil? It's because God loves you. He is not a slaver, a slave driver. God had just rescued Israel from the hand of the Pharaoh who did just that. Force the people into obedience service of his kingdom. Right? But God is not Pharaoh, nor is he like any other earthly king. He will not rule like Pharaoh, nor does he desire his people to go back to the Pharaohs of this world, nor does he want them to become like the Pharaohs of this world and subdue and enslave others. So because God loves you, you have a choice. Love God in return or fall in and conform to the patterns of this world that result in death. So, Joshua 23, verse 3. Joshua starts with this. He says, You yourselves have seen everything the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. It was the Lord your God who fought for you. And he's going to repeat something like that three more times. In other words, the basis, the starting point is not what should you do for God. It's what God has done for you. The basis for choosing God is what he has done. The only reason, Joshua is saying, the only reason you are here today, the only reason you are existing in Israel right now is because God chose you. Right? You didn't choose God. God chose you. God fought for you. And later in chapter 24, Joshua is going to recount hit the history of the people starting from Abraham, then to Egypt and their enslavement, and then through the conquest to the present moment. And he concludes with this. He says, so I gave you a land on which you did not toil and cities you did not build. And you live in them and eat from vineyards and olive groves that you did not plan. Like, I did this for you. You did nothing. I did it all. From slavery and genocide to freedom and rest from all the enemies around, only because of God. Only because of God. But now, you've got to decide whether you will continue in that freedom. In contrast to what, in contrast to what many believe true freedom does not mean do whatever you want. And it would be easy as a settled nation enjoying the vineyards and the olive groves and the homes and the land to say, God set us free. That means we can do whatever we want. No. The irony of freedom is that it is impossible without submission and obedience. That's ironic, isn't it? If you do not submit yourself to obey the rules and regulations that define the kind of life that doesn't lead to bondage and slavery, you can't have freedom. Let me just say that again. If you want a life that is free of bondage of some kind, whether idolatry that you're even oblivious to or or being beholden to the uh, the the slave drivers of this world you know whatever that may look like if you want to be free then you have to submit yourself to live the kind of life that doesn't result in bondage okay that means you submit yourself in obedience to something if you want to be free if you have a fish a fish is designed to be free in a certain environment, right? If that, if, if that fish is in water, it is free, it can move, it can eat, it can reproduce, it can do all the things a fish was made to do. But if you say that fish isn't free unless he can live outside the water, well, try it. Put that fish outside the water. Can he move? Not really. He can flop a few inches here and there, right? Can he breathe? No, not for very long. Lungs aren't designed to breathe air. They get oxygen from water, right? He's going to die. But put him back in the water, put him in the confines of the environment that exists for his freedom, and now that fish is free, right? That's true for all of us. Freedom is not do whatever you want. In fact, freedom is destroyed by Do whatever you want. We destroy freedom when we decide that freedom means I get to choose and do whatever I please. So that's the danger of a settled life. Will they go that route? Now back to our passage, God says there's still more that I want to do for you. There's a remnant of the nations that still exists in the land and God promises that He will continue to fight for Israel and drive them out. So what does He Require from Israel? What is the key to successfully inheriting the remainder of the kingdom? And I want you to notice something in this passage. There is now a shift. Because those nations are no longer a physical threat to Israel, the key to success is no longer a physical war like it was before. So, what's the key? What's the secret to success for Israel? And what I'm going to do is I'm going to consolidate a list of do's that are in the passage. Here's what you need to do. And also a list of of do not. Okay, don't do these things. And then the consequences of both. So do. Verse 6, he says, here's what you need to do. If you do this, God will drive out the nations before you. Be very strong, be careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Obey. Verse 8, hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. In verse 11, be very careful to love the Lord your God. If you do these things, remaining countercultural and separate from the nations, God will drive them out before you. If you do not... If you, so, instead, do not associate with the remnant of the nations among them. Invoke the names of their gods. Swear by them, serve them, or bow down to them. Do not hold fast to the nations. Hold fast to God, right? Don't align yourselves with them. Don't intermarry with them. And finally, at the end, do not violate the covenant you have with God by going and flirting with the gods of the nations. So there's some positives and some negatives, some do's and some don'ts. And there's consequences. And in Deuteronomy, God had laid out the consequences, the promises, to bless the nations if they continue to listen to His voice and walk in obedience, to bless the nation of Israel, and also curses if they break the covenant. So, the passage ends with this. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. God has followed through on everything He said He would do for you. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. But just as all the good things the Lord your God has promised you have come to you, so He will bring on you all the evil things He has threatened until the Lord your God has destroyed you from this good land that He has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which He commanded you, and go and serve the other gods and bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you and you will quickly perish from the good land that He has given you. And that sounds ominous, right? It sounds like an ultimatum. God has proven faithful. He has faithfully fulfilled all that He promised, but watch out because that tells you something about God. That tells you that this is a God who will do faithfully what He said He would do. The very trait about God that brings blessing to the nation, that He is faithful to do what He says, is also very fearful and threatening because it means that if they violate the covenant, he will do what he promised. The issue sounds like love me or die. And indeed, that turns a lot of people away from the Bible and Christianity in general. It turns people off because it's kind of like, yeah, that doesn't sound like a God I would want to love, right? It's kind of like, you have some choices love me. Or I'm going to destroy you. Sounds like an egomaniac, right? But look closer. What does God's anger in bringing about evil things and destroying the people from the good land actually look like in practicality? Well, he actually clarifies that in the verses above says, if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes. Sounds like slavery, right? Until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. The pattern is that disobedience results in wrath, but what does anger, wrath, destruction actually look like? In practicality, and what you actually see through the remainder of the biblical story, is that that simply means God will give you what you want. God will turn you over to the nations you're flirting with, He will turn you over to the gods that you want to go seek. You want to submit yourself to a dog eat dog, survival of the fittest, might makes right, whoever's on top is the godlike, glorious one that everyone should worship. You want to give yourself to the nations that live by that ethic. Fine, they will enslave and destroy you. But if that's what you want, if that's what's so enticing, glory, might, human virtue, you know, human. Um, accomplishment that gives you a name for yourself, okay, I'm not going to sit here and hold on to a nation that is set apart from that if you're not set apart from that. Right? It only makes perfect sense when you put it that way. Living as a people set apart for God, on the other hand, will in and of itself drive out that culture it will drive out the nations as God promised so now instead of the priority being become an established nation by conquering the nations it is be a set apart nation whose holiness undermines and drives out the culture of the nations that remains. Exodus 19, when God first pulled the nation out of slavery, he made them a proposition. He said, "You have seen what I did to all the nations, or you've seen what I did to Egypt, and how I brought you out here on eagle's wings." He says, "Now, if you obey me and fully keep my covenant, the one they were about to make, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession." Although the whole earth is mine, You will be for me a kingdom of priests, that means you will represent me to the nation, you will bear my name to the nations, and a holy nation. What does holy mean? We think of holy as like, you know, a real (laughs) do-gooder. Holy simply means to be set apart, to be different, to be special, to be other than the way everyone else is going to look like something different than what everyone else looks like, to be holy for God. God didn't just choose Israel to take them out of a nation from slavery and make them the most dominant nation in the land for its own sake. No, God chose Israel and recruited them for a specific task that they agreed to. That is to be a nation that is set apart for God, to bear Yahweh's name before the nations, to reveal who God is to a world that is perishing because they don't know their maker and they have chosen to serve rebel gods instead and to become their own gods. So if Israel finds themselves a landed people and decides, you know, I like the comforts of this land. I'm perfectly happy to just sit here and consume these olives and these, this wine. or I don't think we need Yahweh anymore. Look at how these other nations prosper. Look what their gods do for them. We should go over there and check that out. It's compelling. At whatever point the people decide, whether actively or passively to no longer exist for the purpose they agreed to as Yahweh's covenant people in the world, then there's nothing unreasonable nor cruel about God removing Himself from the nation that rejects Him. The purpose of their existence is now null and void, the purpose they themselves agreed to. If Israel mingles with the people of the land, they are in danger of becoming like them, thus they lose their identity as the people of God. They simply do not exist as Israel anymore because they're just like everyone else. From slaves to free. But living free means to be set apart for God. In choosing not to be set apart, choosing the nations, it is a choice to return to slavery. God gives them the freedom to choose because he loves them. And love does not force nor nor coerce its beloved to love in return. So they're called to be holy, to be set apart, unique, special. I um, recently saw a guy with a t-shirt on. He was walking around and uh, we were in our small group and one of our guys pointed this out. And on one side it says like 666 and on the other side it just says unholy unholy you know boasting about our unholiness as if that makes you different right as if that you know i'm whatever that means rebellious you know choosing my own way living for myself unholy and somehow that makes a person significant and i sort of chuckled when i thought about the meaning of the word holiness because basically what that means is i'm going to put on a t-shirt that there is absolutely nothing remarkable about me whatsoever Unholy just means common, ordinary, just like the world, like everyone else. Conforming to the normal patterns of this world. But you were meant for more. You were made for more. I had a conversation with a guy recently. He said, you know, I don't believe in God and I don't think our world needs God anymore. We don't need God. And I think what he's getting at is like, you know, for a while we didn't understand thunderstorms and natural disasters and lightning or why people die or why they're suffering and judgment and so on. And so we, ha- we needed God to explain these things. And, and, you know, later I thought to myself, okay, I look around at our world today, I'm like, you don't think we need God? Like, this is crazy. Right? <laughs> um, but I do. Because, you know, the message of our culture is like, look within. All you need is right here. All you need for meaning and self-validation is inside of you. Look right here inside. And so, if everything you need is just right here in this little capsule of, of me, and that's good for you, okay. But that's not good enough for me. You're happy with that. You're happy with just like, I've got all I need and this is good enough for me right here. Fine. That's all you're ever going to get. But as for me, I look at my life and I see that there's brokenness. There's things that aren't whole. Whether it's my knees crackling more and more as I go up and down stairs because I'm getting older my body's wearing out, or whether it's the deficiencies I continue to see as, I, as a father or as a husband or as a follower of Christ. Even this week, um, God just revealed to me how, how self-absorbed I tend to be and how I ignore the opportunities to serve Him in, in even just simple ways. And I see that brokenness and I realize, is the fact that that is broken, and I recognize that, is that not evidence that there is a thing called wholeness? Is, and this is, CS, this is an argument C.S. Lewis used. But is the fact of that incompleteness, does that not lend itself to the idea that there is such a thing as completeness, that there is an ultimate wholeness, an ultimate fulfillment, an ultimate and real completeness out there? Or I look around and and I see beauty, hints at beauty in the midst of the ugliness around us. And Lewis talks about, um, you know, this sense of urge that we have when you see a beautiful sunset and there's a part of you that wants to sort of become absorbed into that beauty, to enter into it somehow more than just observing it. And we see these fleeting images of beauty or justice or hope. And is that, is, would we not feel these things if, we're, if they were not wired in us, that we were wired and made for some ultimate beauty, some ultimate justice, some ultimate pleasure and goodness, which means that when we taste those things, it's like we're downstream. We're downstream drinking the water's but there is a fountainhead, there is a spring, there is a source that it all points upwards to. And I'm not okay saying down here in the muddy waters, that's good enough, we don't need anything else. No, I want the source. I want the source. And if I live my life based on the hope that that source exists and somehow find out that I was wrong someday, I will have lived a more hopeful and better life than simply accepting what is and saying we're okay we don't need God this is all there is it's not good enough for me and that in itself you know doesn't complete an argument for the existence of God and that's not the purpose of this message and we could go there but that's also where we need faith but what is the warning violating the covenant to transgress God's covenant here is not simply to break some rules it is to go and therefore serve other gods the covenant is God's relationship defined it's his marriage with his people so to say if you transgress my covenant I will withdraw from you simply means that to transgress the covenant is essentially to go to other lovers when you're married to someone. It's to choose idols. And so in Joshua 24, he says you need to choose. You need to choose whom you're going to serve. And in verse 14 of chapter 24, he says, Now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors, that your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And the people respond and they say, how could we ever turn from the Lord who has done all these wonderful things for us? And they say, we too will serve the Lord because He is our God. Joshua says something interesting to the people at that point. He says, you are not able to. You are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. And that's kind of an unfortunate translation. I looked up the meaning of the words there and it's more like, He will not carry He will not bear up or hold or bear with ongoing rebellion and evil doing in the midst of sin offerings at the same time. In other words, He's not going to carry a nation that keeps rejecting Him. No, we will serve the Lord, they say. So this is the prospect. I chose you. You're here because of me. Now then, will you choose me? Not as a condition for blessing, but because of the blessing. And he says, you can't. And they couldn't and they wouldn't be able to. One generation later, they would immediately start to spiral further and further and further into depravity and evil, And even then, all the way through the book of Judges, as it just sinks into a hole, God still hangs on by a thread to even one act of obedience that can further His name and His kingdom. The reason we fail, I believe, what it comes down to is that we don't believe that God's approval for us is good enough for us. We don't believe that our appetites can be satiated through God. We trust our emotions and our appetites and what we think we need above God's wisdom and above what He offers. Israel would be lured away and ensnared by the culture of the nations. I was talking this week to my friend that I talk to every week about you know, what we're preaching through. And I was, I was really like uninspired. And he was talking about how in his current situation, there's a lot of comforts that have been removed and how learning to live without those comforts has opened his eyes to how much you can serve the Lord when you don't have those things. And he says, man, our church, our church and our culture is so stuck. We're so addicted to our comforts and our culture And the things that we think give us an identity, the voices we think we need to give us a sense of approval and value, that we are just stuck. We we don't serve the way God has called us to serve. We don't make a difference the way we are capable of making a difference. And I said to him, honestly, I said, you know, I believe you, but right now I feel totally unmotivated. What does that even look like right now? And he said, he challenged me, because some of you know, like, I've, you know, I've got like a side photography business and a hobby, but sometimes even good things like that can become idols. And he just point blank was like, well, you spend a lot of time on that. Don't tell me you can't go visit someone who's sick or give more time to your kids or or even do the simple things that just represent the character of Jesus to someone. And it just hit me. And I got really defensive, and then I hung up, and then God was just like... (laughs) You know? And I realized, and you know what was interesting that came to mind, that he brought to mind, was an internal struggle that I had earlier, where I had like, you know, taken this beautiful picture and spent all this time editing it. And when you make something, whether it's like art or furniture or, you know, anything like that, what's the point? Well, the point is to present it to someone else so they will enjoy it and appreciate it, right? But there comes a point when you're unhealthy inside where what you give of yourself to someone else and how they react to it becomes something you need. I need that person's approval for validation, And I had just looked at all these marketing courses on how you get your stuff out there. And it's like, you got to get it before an audience. And social media is the best place to do that. Put that out there on all your community pages. And I'm sitting here looking at one of our Anacortes pages. And there's about, you know, 15,000 people on this Anacortes page. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I want to put this out there. But everything I see on this page is just so ugly. Those of you who know what I'm talking about, know what I'm talking about. All you have to say is like, I saw an accident on the roundabout. You people don't know how to drive. You know, like like people have this nature underneath that just explodes into existence on pages like this. And it is the nations. It is right here. In Joshua, it is the devouring dog-eat-dog nature that is in every single human being, and it's manifesting itself, and it's, and it's like how much better we are than someone else because I can decide on my platform whether you deserve my approval or not. And I realized that my internal wrestling match was that I really wanted the approval of the nations. And that my work, which was some representation of myself, depended on their approval. This is what causes Israel to go after other gods. We want to look cool for those guys. This is what the church is mired in. We hope the nations like us when they see how we worship. We need their approval or we're not cool enough in their eyes. How many ways do we do that? Individually? Corporately? What is God saying? I didn't post it to that page. I posted to another page that moderates the comments more. (laughs) So that you can only say nice things about me. (laughs) Which is necessary probably sometimes, right? Oh, it's not healthy. But I realize how close good things can be ultimate things and become idols, and I deliberately set that thing aside for a time. I'm not ready to give it up, <laughs> you know, completely, but I'm going to watch myself. I'm going to look at where those opportunities to serve are that I'm, you know, maybe I don't have time for that today, right? No, I need to get out of myself. And so do you. So do we all. When Jesus fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes, they all followed him to the other side of the lake. And they said to him when they found him, Rabbi, how did you get here? And he answered, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. In other words, you're not really looking for me. You're looking for someone who can satisfy your appetites, that hunger, that thirst, what we can give you, that need for approval, whatever that is. We serve our appetites of various kinds and make idols and gods out of that which can give us what we want, but we are too short-sighted and easily pleased. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, he says, which the Son of Man will give you. For on Him God the Father has placed His seal of approval. In other words... You can receive God's seal of approval too, through Him. They asked Him, What was, must we do? Uh, what must we do to do the works that God requires? And Jesus says, The work of God is this, to believe in the one He has sent. And then later Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Right, what was the promise? If you come to me, I will drive out the nations. That culture, I will destroy it. If you come to me, I will never drive you away. It is true. Love God or die. That is, choose God or choose the snare. This world only offers those two options. There is no third option. But I could never choose God and I could never love God if God had not chosen me first. And that's the basis that Joshua gives for all of it. And he says, therefore, now choose. Ephesians 1. <laughs> I didn't check my notes. Last page of my notes, there's like a printer error, and it's all missing. <laughs> so maybe it's on the screen. Ephesians 1. Is it there? No. All right, I'll summarize it So I kind of have it here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. It's not coming to me, the rest of it. But that's okay because that might be enough. In Christ, you have every spiritual blessing. Everything that God offers through His Son. Because Jesus offered Himself as a true, fully obedient Joshua, whereas they could not hinge their identity on Joshua because Joshua was going to die, Jesus died and was resurrected. And when he went to the cross, he exposed the true nature of the nations and their true selves. And he laid it bare for all to see, exposing them to open shame, as Colossians says. And he gives us that opportunity. Choose this. Choose the nations that enslave and devour or the king who prays for the forgiveness of the very ones who are crucifying him. Choose your king, the one who took the consequences for our rebellion and our idolatry on himself and then offers you everything that he was entitled to. In him, we are given every spiritual blessing because to be in Christ means to receive that forgiveness to enter into his covenant as his people, to give our allegiance to Jesus. And when we do that, God gives us his status. God says, you now are in the blessings that I have promised. And every blessing I promise comes true. Therefore, choose Jesus. I had a song from John Newton who also wrote Amazing grace And the words were something like because it's not here as The stars fade because of the dawn so too the pleasures of this world when Jesus is revealed and The chorus is Creatures or the creation no longer divide my choice. I bid them all depart his name his love His gracious voice hath fixed my wandering heart. And he keeps doing that for me over and over again. Bringing my heart back because it keeps wandering. How about you? Let's pray. Father God, we are wanderers. But I thank you for Jesus who faithfully chose you and was obedient to you even unto death, even death on a cross. I thank you that in Jesus you freely give us the gift of an inheritance. You make us heirs, adopted as children. That's what Ephesians 1 says. You make us your own heirs of your kingdom, just like Israel was to be. You make us a landed people, a free people from slavery. But forgive us, God, for all the ways that we forget that freedom doesn't mean just be stationary and live in comfort. It means submit yourself to the environment that doesn't result in slavery. There are only two choices. And today, God, I pray that every person here would choose freedom, would choose Jesus, and submit ourselves to a life of serving God. Show us the little ways we can do that today. The people we can call, the time we can spend in your word rather than on television or doing other things the ways we can make a difference standing up for you, it is obedience to your freedom that drives out an enslaving culture. That's how you conquer the nations. So wake us up and make us obedient today. We give ourselves to you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: We want to thank you again for joining us today and let you know that we love you and Jesus loves you. And you always have a place here at ACC. If you made a decision for Christ today or you just want to talk with someone, please don't hesitate to reach out. We have a really easy contact form you can fill out on our website or you can call us at 360-293-3729. We would love to talk with you. Go in peace and have a wonderful week. We'll talk to you soon.